Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 78, The Eastern Bear. Folks, we've technically entered the home stretch of Season 1, as we have just two heavy hitters left to cover to complete our picture of the 1920s. I say technically because this coming series covers the establishment of the Soviet Union and the rise to power of one Joseph Stalin, so calling it a home stretch is, well, it's stretching the term to put it mildly because this is going to be, by far, the biggest miniseries of this first season, with some of the biggest post-World War I events popping off in this period. I do give those of you waiting for the crises of the 30s the assurance that after this miniseries, there won't be a whole lot left to cover before moving on to the Depression and beyond. Relatively. Just a couple mop-up episodes covering broader international goings-on, followed by the United States miniseries that I promise will be far shorter and transition directly into the Depression. Hopefully upon completion, I'll have covered every possible angle of why a lasting peace after World War I wasn't established when there was an opportunity for it. And as I begin to finally turn to the Soviet Union, I ask myself how that nation really helped to stabilize the world during the 20s and 30s. And their single biggest contribution to starting World War II was probably their infamous treaty with Nazi Germany in 1939 that made the USSR an accomplice while the Germans rolled through Europe, among a lot of other things that we'll cover later. Spoilers, uh, that's actually season two's finale. And yeah, they tried early on to export their revolution, which is something I will cover in this series, but after initial setbacks, they mostly turned inward. True, there was the China endeavor and support for other foreign communists, and that was all important, but also smaller in scope and influence compared to what would come later. No, the main source of instability coming from Russia in the 1920s was the fact that they were the only government on Earth at the time building towards socialism and eventually communism as a stated purpose, and one that encouraged other nations to join them. For nations whose societies were based ultimately on the defense of private property and the acquisition of more of it, this was anathema. It was also a source of extreme danger, or at least a perception of danger. All those socialists throwing their weight around post-World War I in Germany and Italy? You remember, the ones put down by the black shirts in the Free Corps? Those movements were feared to be ultimately controlled by Moscow. What happened when the Labour Party in the UK had their first successes? They were accused of being in league with the Comintern. The Red Scare in America was started over fears of Bolshevism in the New World. The state, engineered by Lenin and his inner circle, had an outsized impact on the great powers of the world, as they feared almost every bit of social discontent had its origins there. And if given more resources, Lenin and his team would have been happy to really justify those fears. But the reality was less dramatic than that, and the new Soviet state in its first decade was far more focused on simple survival and figuring out just what it was meant to be, all the while trying to repair the damage of its torturous birth. Oh yeah, and also the rise to power of Stalin, who would take that young state in wild new directions. So yeah, despite their passivity on the world stage during most of the interwar era, a lot went on. And given that it was the Soviets that were the ones who truly went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Europe's fascists, I want to give a good accounting of how a state that won that battle came into existence and developed. And that calls for a little bit of table-setting and context to start off with because what makes the Soviet Union unique in this time period is that it was a genuinely new kind of nation. Even in the countries going through political turmoil and societal change, nothing I've covered so far or in the future will begin to compare to what happened to Russia in the first third of the 20th century. Even in countries that went fascist, the underpinnings of what came before were never challenged like they were here, 
And I'm not saying that it was a utopia, far from it, but it was different from everyone else in this period. The revolutions of 1917, though, didn't exactly make a clean break with the past, so get ready for some wonderful context. Even after the October Revolution, the old order didn't want to go quietly. So before I really get going, I'm going to be up front. The next few episodes are going to cover a lot of historical ground to get you caught up to why the Bolsheviks were able to seize power and what exactly they were seizing power from. This is very much so going to be a crash course on the build-up to the Russian Revolution, which was more a series of revolutions that transitioned into a years-long civil war. This is not, though, a specific history of the Russian Revolution, as that is just too big a topic, and my main aim here in this series is to explain the violence that scarred the Soviet Union early on and informed its development going into the future. If you want a far more in-depth look at the years leading up to 1917 and the revolution itself, and I hope you do, it's one of the most important sequence of events in human history, check out the Revolution's podcast, and then immediately come back and listen to this one. Okay. That's enough laboring over plans, let's get this thing kicked off. The Soviet Union was the inheritor to the real estate of the Russian Empire, a vast realm that got its start in the rubble of Mongolian invasions. From humble beginnings as first a tributary duchy to the Mongol Khans, Muscovy became the preeminent power among the splintered Russian people. It was they that threw off the Mongol yoke and incorporated all their rivals into their growing dominion during the 1400s and 1500s. And their expansion, which is the important thing I'm bringing up here, hardly ever stopped after that. It would be that expansion that would be a defining feature of the eventual empire. It also created a never-ending parade of enemies. First, there were the aforementioned Mongols on the steppes and the rival city-states surrounding the Muscovites, and just as those threats had been dealt with, dynastic difficulties created a window where the massive Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth invaded and had to be dealt with over the course of the 1600s. In the 1700s, it was Sweden. In the early 1800s, it was France. The further south the Russians got, the more they came into conflict with the Ottoman Empire. To the east, across the Urals, the frontier appeared to be endless until they reached the Pacific Ocean. And then they just overcame that obstacle and started establishing themselves in Alaska. The drive of expansion was driven by a very similar mindset to that of Japan in the late 1800s, early 1900s. To defend the homeland, the outlying frontiers had to be secured. Once those new lands were secured, the ones beyond those had to be as well to secure the last round of acquisitions. And the expansion game went around and around like that for centuries. Eventually, though, all those wars of conquest finally started infringing on the interests of states big enough, and more relevantly, developed enough, to check the massive empire. The Napoleonic Wars had established Russia as Europe's big heavy. Its army size was huge, and it acted as the guarantor of the conservative peace after 1815. If the United States and the Soviet Union were the bedrock of the post-World War II peace, and if the UK and France had to manage after World War I, these decades after Napoleon were the purview of the Russian Empire. But old habits died hard, and the Russian Tsar still wanted to expand outward. And after helping crush the 1848 revolutions that had swept across Europe, the Russians wanted to take a victory lap and attack the Ottoman Empire. They did this in 1853 by occupying the principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, which you might recall later merged into the Kingdom of Romania. But this only provoked the British and French, who embarked on the Crimean War. Compared to the Napoleonic Wars, it was a small-scale affair. The British and French merely wanted to protect the Ottomans and make the war costly enough that it wouldn't be worth the effort for the Russians. The Russians, not wanting to march across hostile coastlines in the face of Western naval supremacy, paused their march into the Turkish Empire. 
but they declined to come to the peace table, opting to let the Westerners patrol the Black Sea indefinitely. Which was bad for the Allies, because if the Russians simply contented themselves with occupying the Romanians away from the coasts, then that was a loss for them. They needed some place to strike that would force the Russians into the field, but not allow them to marshal overwhelming force. They decided to strike at the city of Sevastopol, Russia's key naval base in the Black Sea. From 1854 to 55, the city was besieged, and popular accounts of the battles and sorties became legendary in their time. The British and French navies prowled all around the Black Sea, bombarding ports and completely disrupting Russian attempts at getting supplies into the peninsula. Keep in mind that the Russians had no railroads to ship things into the area. If it wasn't going by port, it'd have to be delivered via wagon over abysmal roads. The Tsarist state proved incapable of shouldering the burden. The army didn't have the officers capable of organizing proper defense, the state's bureaucracy was incapable of mobilizing the nation, and the soldiers themselves were facing better trained and equipped opponents, who also held complete control of the seas. Which was important, since this was one of the few places in Russia with long coastlines. The Russian army would lose a half million men over the course of the war. It was all a disaster, and the Crimea fell to the Allies. Their fleets had also penetrated into the Baltic Sea and were raiding the Russian coasts in the north as well. This was the death knell, as Russia was now mostly cut off from the world, as their road system to Europe was too undeveloped to carry on normal economic activity through those channels. The Russians went to the negotiating table in defeat. Their concessions were relatively insignificant. Some former territory seized had to be returned to the Ottomans, and the Black Sea was for a time demilitarized. Not the worst loss in military history by a long shot. But in the context of the Russian Empire, and its czars being the guarantors of an autocratic order, the war was devastating. Since 1815, the autocracy of Russia had managed affairs internally and internationally under the assumption that they were unbeatable, that their concentration of power at the top was the system that made for the strongest of nations. That conception of invincibility was now broken for all time. Tsar Nicholas I, who had embarked on the war, spent some time outside in the cold one evening in February. It was just as cold as you might imagine in late winter in St. Petersburg, and he came down with pneumonia. He refused to see his doctors and died soon after on March 2, 1855, over a year before the war was brought to its formal conclusion. It is widely believed that this was his way of committing suicide, and I personally agree with that. In the years leading up to the war, the intelligentsia of Russia had been rumbling about the need of modern reforms in the government. And not just a few tweaks to how the nation was run, but vast reforms to allow for economic and political modernization that would bring Russia more in line with the West. These rumblings had been ignored before, but could be no longer. And that's kind of why I'm taking a moment to talk about the Crimean War. The defeat demonstrated that the prior status quo was untenable and it would be the reforms that followed that would unleash changes in society that the autocracy was wholly unprepared to deal with, and were improperly managed to the point where revolution really became inevitable. These sweeping changes to Russia are referred to as the Great Reforms. Real imaginative nomenclature there, I know. Alexander II, successor to Nicholas I, modified virtually every aspect of government in Russia as this program got underway in 1864. The judiciary was updated to have open trials and a more simplified system of law. Local assemblies, called zemsvos, were allowed to be established in the provinces and districts of most of the empire. These bodies allowed a measure of self-government to local representatives, and they're going to be really important during the last two decades of Tsarist rule as they gave an opportunity for Russian notables to engage in politics. 
The army was modernized and moved away from a mass army of peasants to a more professional force based on universal conscription. Jews had their travel restrictions lifted so they could move about the country freely. The economy was liberalized, so larger, private enterprises became more attractive. Now, these reforms don't sound like anything earth-shattering, but for the thin band of nobles used to living on the despotic side of absolute power, it was an adjustment. And more importantly, it opened the doors to modern enterprises and ideas that the rigid autocracy was ill-equipped to adapt to. Alexander's biggest move, though, was actually a few years earlier in 1861. Since time immemorial, the lowest and largest class of people in Russia were the serfs. Serf being a medieval term used for peasants bound to their noble lord and his estate. Alexander made the decision to finally emancipate the serfs and give them full freedoms as regular subjects, which included the right to travel. And as the vast majority of the serfs were peasants, there was also an allowance that they could take possession of part of their former lord's estate as their own. The catch was that it would have to be paid for over the course of 50 years, which was a hell of a catch. This was a compromise meant to ensure the nobles went along with the plan, which had been one of the main sticking points to abolishing serfdom for generations. Plus, the land doled out to the serfs usually wasn't sufficient to support the new landholders, which meant in addition to working their own land, they still had to sell their services to the nobles in order to support themselves. So while the abolishment of serfdom was a plus, it did create new resentments that would bite the regime down the road. The overall purpose of the reforms was to make the country more dynamic outside the nobility, while still keeping the traditional autocracy intact. Society might have been opened up a little, but there was still no parliament. The nobles continued to dominate the ministries while working at the Tsar's pleasure, and the old table of ranks that had organized Russian society into a clear pecking order was still in full effect. This created a weird dynamic where the top of the country was dominated by the imperial court, while underneath it, more representative groups operated. The Zemsvos were an interesting development in society, and they were composed of delegates from every walk of life in Russia. Strictly speaking, they didn't have official standing to change laws or take any actions that you'd expect from provincial or town parliaments, but by virtue of being composed of local notables, they were able to usually press the governors appointed from the capital, which was an early and consistent source of friction, as for the successful Zemsvos that actually managed to improve conditions in their area, they didn't really want to be micromanaged from distant St. Petersburg, or from appointees from St. Petersburg. There were also the peasant communes as well. The communes were just what they sound like, community councils led by elders out in the rural areas of the empire, and they actually predated the great reforms, but I might as well cover them here. They adjudicated disputes and generally kept the peace via popular will. And importantly, they had a say in how land was apportioned. In most of Russia, the community itself held the land in a collective trust. The community was empowered to periodically distribute land based on the needs of whichever peasants needed additional land to support them and their families. Those allowances could be revised by the commune as a whole later if it was determined the family no longer needed it or if someone was in even more desperate straits. Which didn't necessarily happen often, but the mechanism was there. And in doing so, the communes were successful at apportioning the land fairly. It's important to note that they weren't a political group per se, although they would decide on representatives to send to the local Zemsfos. But they did allow the community a certain level of organization that was purely local and only loosely connected to the empire's bureaucracy. It created a source of stability in the countryside and allowed small communities to remain functioning even in times of crisis. 
This self-sufficiency was almost a requirement, because while the Tsars made a claim to absolute power, the effective reach of their government was terribly limited. The main presence of the government in the rural areas was the land captain, who acted as an intermediary for the commune and the provincial government. They were not popular figures, as the distance between the governors and the captains was such that the latter were able to abuse their authority almost with impunity. When the coercive power of the autocracy began to shrink, the captains were a big target for reprisals. Brief aside, since I'm talking about peasants, they were the bedrock of the Russian Empire's population. Grain was the nation's biggest export, and the vast yet backwards farms were the backbone of production. That obsessive focus on grain was a hallmark of Russian agricultural life. Nothing else could hold a candle to it. True, in places like the Baltics and Ukraine, farms produced a more balanced array of goods, and in Central Asia and the Caucasus, pastoralism was the order of the day, but as a proportion of output, grain was it. And unfortunately, it really wasn't doing well at the time. Like I've said, it was backwards. No mechanization, no fertilization, just peasant-powered harvests. Tolstoy liked to glorify such work in his writings as noble and fulfilling, but in reality, it was unrewarding labor that only barely produced enough to keep the peasantry alive, and for many, that assumed they had those side gigs on the noble estates or as hired laborers on non-agricultural jobs. One of the biggest problems was that Russian farms were on average terribly small and scattered. Families often worked a collection of small plots they would have to travel to and from during the harvest season. This is compared to farming, say, in the United States or Canada, where operations were both huge and consisted of continuous plots. Farmers there could plant one huge crop in one huge place and then harvest it in one go, a luxury Russian farmers simply did not have. Then there was the issue of a growing population. You might have noticed that in most of these miniseries there have been serious conflicts over food. And it's almost as if the conflicts in the first half of the 20th century have a macro aspect to them, and food insecurity was a key component to the lower classes rising against their masters. The growing cities, which I'll talk about in a moment, absorbed some of the excess from the countryside, but not all. The problem was especially acute in the core of Russia. And when I say the core of Russia, or Russia proper, I mean what is basically modern-day Russia west of the Urals. European Russia. Kind of like how last series China's core was the eastern half of the country and south of Manchuria. This mega-region was wholly dependent on grain both as a foodstuff and an export, and was unable to diversify into more profitable options. The state was uninterested in addressing the pressure in an organized fashion, and so the insecurity got steadily worse as the communes tried their best to keep everyone alive. Added to that, the lingering effects of the ex-serfs being in heavy debt on account of having to pay back the former noble lands they had acquired, and, well... It shouldn't be a surprise that revolutionaries found quite a bit of support in the countryside. There were attempts to send peasants elsewhere, but these were haphazard attempts that never really fixed the problem. In some instances, like settling Russians in Central Asia, attempts at migration only created new problems. And the peasants were so impoverished they couldn't themselves afford to move on their own, so lacking a state program of resettlement, things only got worse in the heartlands of the empire. Despite all the expansion, the Tsardom proved incapable of actually utilizing all the land they had absorbed. Now, emergence of local power centers and liberalization of the state didn't change a whole heck of a lot about who was in charge and who was powerful. It was still the nobles, with the Tsar on the top. The structure of society didn't change. People just had a few more rights, and in the case of the emancipated serfs, tax obligations. It did add a new element, though, that would be the root cause of the autocracy's downfall, the urban proletariat. 
Before the 1860s, Russia was terribly, terribly unindustrialized. It had no significant class of people who worked in massive factories toiling away into humanizing conditions while living in overcrowded neighborhoods where the like-minded could organize against their tormentors. The economic liberalization parts of Alexander's reforms changed all that. To keep pace with the other great powers, Russia found itself under incredible stress to build up its industries and railroad network, efforts that really took off in the late 1890s. The heyday of Russian industrial expansion occurred under the Russian Minister of Finance from 1892 to 1903, Sergei Vitya. This guy is worth knowing just because he's one of the few in the Tsar's regime that possessed both the vision and the capacity to execute it. But since he wasn't of the traditional Russian nobility, he was constantly undermined by said nobility and distrusted by Tsar Nicholas II, whom he served under. Before World War I, Russia was still only partially industrialized. Well, that's mostly true, but the Tsar's regime was working on that right up to the war. Because by the breakout of that war, it was the fifth largest industrial economy in the world, behind only the US, UK, Germany, and France. Their advancement was actually a big reason why the German general staff was so gung-ho about a war in 1914, their fear being that if they dilly-dallied, then Russia would modernize and through its sheer size be impossible to beat. The French had the same idea and pumped loans into their ally to expand Russia's capacity and also make a pile of money for themselves in the bargain. Why Russia was still considered self-defeatingly backward was because that process was still far from completion on account of the overall size of the country. The industrial centers were concentrated in major urban areas like St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Kiev. The overwhelming vast majority of the nation was still agrarian in character and traditional in lifestyle, with no railroads or telegraph lines reaching them. The expansion of industry did result in a boom for urban populations, with the number of people living in cities doubling in the 20 years before 1917. That only amounted to 20% of the population, though, the rest still being connected to traditional agriculture, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, was a field that was getting a little crowded. And agriculture was still deeply important to the economy as grain continued to be Russia's key export, namely to the German Empire, which uh, kind of created some interesting economic effects uh, when the war broke out. But in peacetime, the money earned from those exports was turned around and pumped into more industrial and infrastructure projects. The expansion was done with almost total disregard for the human cost of such projects. Sergei Vitya observed that since the industrial workforce had no recourse but to pull from the peasant population, that one upshot was that they were already used to living in misery, so they could work for less than even the proletariat in Western Europe. And conditions were nightmarish, with the long hours, low pay, and hazardous conditions I've talked about in other countries reaching an inhuman apex in Russia. Workers were crammed into dormitories, entire families into one-room apartments or cellars. Uh, in the more dire cases, rooms were shared between families. The sudden expansion of the cities overwhelmed many a city's infrastructure, as, for example, St. Petersburg, the sewer and water systems were unable to service many of the incoming workers as the incompetent officials showed little concern for the low-class newcomers. Moscow gets a gold star for bucking that trend and actually expanding their own water and sewage systems. So, the workers there still live in a razor's edge of starving to death, but they had clean water and an ability to flush their waste. And I'll bring the point back up again, Russia's industries on a per capita basis weren't that big. Yes, they were in the top five overall, but if you adjusted for population size, they were closer to Bulgaria and in how industrialized they were. And I'll remind you that Bulgaria wasn't industrialized. 
And yet, the increase in complexity of economic activity and the expanding reach of the state, thanks to improved communications, meant that Tsarist Russia's government was forced to expand its own operations. And even on that front, they failed badly. Remember that at the apex of the power structure was the Tsar. He had no checks on paper and ruled through the empire's nobility. As they governed on behalf of the Tsar, they too didn't have very many checks. Thanks to the increase in business ventures, there too arose a corresponding business class, who thanks to their wealth could also count themselves as influential regardless of where they were on the old table of ranks. But that influence was fragile, as one's power rested with their access to the Tsar, and the nobility had that on lock unless you were above and beyond successful, like Sergei Vitya. And even then, the wealthy could fall prey to court intrigues, like Sergei Vitya. It was the Tsar and his inner circle that made appointments to the ministries, and those appointments filled out the ministries. So you had noble buddies appointing their own other noble buddies to high office, who then in turn filled out the government offices with their own people. It certainly wasn't a system based on merit, and the nobility failed to appreciate the changes that were happening under them. The plight of the urban worker didn't register with the ones in power, the conditions of the peasants were likewise played down as they wanted to protect their remaining estates, and the ever-expanding bureaucracies became increasingly beyond their capacity to control. They simply got too big, and the ministers in charge simply lacked the ability to manage. To expand on that last point, the Russian nobility kept to their traditional level of education, which, while not terrible, also didn't take into account how to manage a modern government office, or keep complex programs on track, or even just, you know, identify with the uh, increasingly diverse people that they oversaw. They were dukes for crying out loud. They didn't read spreadsheets, they rode horses and cheated on their wives. On the lower levels of the bureaucracy, conditions weren't much better. The nobles might have been bad managers, but their rank and file weren't anything to write home about either. The pool of talent in Russia for office work was understandably undeveloped at first. The overwhelming majority of the population were peasants, focused on survival, and the state didn't care to educate them. There were some efforts to change, and education was one problem the Zemsvos made notable progress on. But even if literacy rates were on the upswing towards the end of Tsarist Russia, it wasn't enough to produce a crop of viable candidates to move the cities and staff the government offices. For one, the government was chronically short of money, which was a pitfall of being so huge a nation with an equally spread out population. Tax collection is a real mother when you have to travel thousands of miles across almost every climate and terrain type known to man. If somebody got some schooling and showed some real talent and capability, he'd probably be whisked away to work in the private sector. The more middling of the educated, with fewer options, were who wound up staffing the underpaid and underappreciated government staff. And as government got bigger, as the economy grew, and the business of the empire got more complex, it proved incapable of smooth governing and peacetime, much less during times of grave crisis. The problems of society and state fueled an increasingly assertive Russian intelligentsia. I say assertive in that they became ever more vocal in their frustrations with the creaking state and the frankly embarrassing conditions of the nation's people. It was a broad group who could count among it literary figures like Dostoevsky and Chekhov, and revolutionaries like Lenin. It was basically anybody who could form an opinion and get people to listen to them. They were the proto-posters. And they were an irate bunch, not just because of the reasons I've laid out, but also because they personally didn't have a lot of power or influence. It was a noble's world, and they just lived in it. And while many came from noble backgrounds themselves, uh, they weren't the types who got put into positions where, you know, they could actually change things. Broadly speaking, they all agreed that the shackles of the autocracy had to be dismantled and genuine freedoms bestowed on the entire nation. Of course, there was a difference of opinion to how that should come about. The liberals wanted to implement political reforms that would give them a voice in the government. 
vast majority of them didn't want to go so far as assaulting the Tsar's place of centrality, but just make it a little less overwhelming. But you better believe there was also a far left developing that was advocating the complete dissolution of the Tsarist state and deposing the nobles and shiny new bourgeois of the wealth and property that gave them such lopsided power. Now, the autocracy took note of this dissent and took varying steps to put it down. As part of the expanding government footprint, a new institution of secret police, known as the Akrana, was created. They covered the bases of your basic secret police. They intercepted mail, entrapped suspected dissidents, infiltrated anti-regime organizations, instilled a sense of fear and dread. Normal secret police stuff. For most of the liberal intelligentsia, protests asking for more lawful rights was permissible within certain boundaries, and their activities were tolerated. It also didn't hurt if the dissident was high up on the social food chain or had connections with those who were. Revolutionaries like Lenin and other Marxists, though, had to be very careful in their dealings and how public their activities were. Ultimately, these efforts did little good, and most revolutionaries worth their salt found themselves arrested and exiled to Siberia. Imprisonment there wasn't quite the death sentence it would become under Stalin, but it wasn't a walk in the park either. Not a lot to do out there in the frozen wastes except bicker with your fellow exiles and count the trees, of which there were a lot. Saving grace was that the typical exile only lasted a few years, whereupon the revolutionary in question usually had the good sense of just, you know, leaving the country instead of tempting the fates and getting sent back out there. Or they simply escaped their exile, which around half of them did. Turns out, keeping an eye on broadly dispersed dissidents in the boonies wasn't rewarding work for law enforcement, and they were susceptible to bribes looked the other way, while an exile hopped a train and went home. And despite the increasing dissent, by the turn of the century, the autocracy of the Russian Empire had convinced itself that it was turning a corner. It was modernizing, it was industrializing, it was still big and bad. Underneath that confidence, though, the giant had feet of clay, and starting in 1904, it was to undergo a series of shocks that would bring the whole damn thing crashing down. But just what was this autocracy I keep on yammering on about? Well, join me next week as I introduce the state and its institutions that were destined to be swept away. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.